following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, my name is Jacob. I am one of the pastors here at Foundation. Um, I'm very glad to have you all here today. So I'm going to warn you in advance, uh, my introduction in this sermon is going to be quite long because it's kind of an introduction to this eight-part series that I'm beginning today. Um, it's somewhat unusual compared to the normal preaching that you would experience here, and so I, I want to make sure to explain what is going on. Um, so I'll be preaching for these four Sundays starting today, and then for four more in the fall, making a total of eight, um, and I'll be working through the book of Genesis. Uh, so like I said, this series is going to be different than from the others that we usually do here. We, we typically just uh, work like, straight through a book of the Bible, kind of like paragraph by paragraph roughly. Um, I, I won't be doing a small text. I'm going to be working through big kind of sweeping narratives, but I'm also not going to be simply offering a summary of those narratives like we do um, when we do our, our mini-series where we do big overviews of books of the Bible. Rather, I am going to be taking a section of Genesis and preaching thematically. Uh, so what I mean by that is that I am going to be looking in that text and I'm going to be drawing a biblical theme out of the text. It may or may not be the main theme per se, of that narrative, and then I'm going to be looking through the whole Bible to trace that theme through God's entire work to us. Uh, so because this is kind of a new food for us, I do want to take some time to explain a little bit about the method and why this is a legitimate way to read and therefore preach the Bible. So first let me talk a little bit about the idea of a biblical theme. A theme would be a common pattern, an image, an event, um, a repetition, a story, a plot line that is found in the Bible. The Bible is a work of literature. It's written by one author, God, in the voice of many human authors, and so it contains all the same components as other literature. And so literature, of course, often contains themes that are not explicitly listed or called out, but are clearly, vitally intended by the author. Right? So we can take Moby Dick as an example. It's a famous book about an angry sea captain who's obsessed with killing a massive white whale that ate his leg. And in the end, he loses everything and dies trying. Okay, so there's no chapter in Moby Dick entitled A Dangerous Obsession, but that's clearly one of the themes of the book. None of the characters ever say, revenge is often worse for those who try to chase after it than for the one who deserves it. But if you read the book, it's hard to miss that message. The author clearly intends these themes to be drawn from the book. And likewise, the Bible says a lot of things about life and doctrine, not by necessarily listing them, but by developing them in many examples over long, sweeping parts of the Bible. And so by reading the Bible in this way with an eye for themes and repetition and patterns, it opens up a new depth and breadth of understanding to us and shows us how different parts of the Bible fit together and ultimately teaches us about God and what He loves and what He hates and what He wants us to know. So one summary that I like that describes the main theme of the Bible, um, if there were such a thing, is that the Bible in general is a story about God bringing His people into His place to be with Him. Okay, a story about God bringing His people into His place to be with Him. And so if you're interested in kind of more of this type of study, I have um, some good resources to recommend, one of which is, is the, the book that I stole that from. Um, but some other major themes in the Bible would include things like glory, sin, redemption, love, judgment. 
And sometimes, like in this series, we can be even more specific than that. Some of the themes that I'm going to be dealing with are things like nations, or water, or clothing. So all of these biblical themes, either big or small, have something to say to us because they are written intentionally into Scripture by God. And so the study of the Bible in this way is called biblical theology. Studying the Bible as a whole unit. The big picture, all the threads that weave together to make a whole that is greater than its parts. So how do we study biblical themes? What we don't want to do is just make up a theme and then go searching for evidence. This isn't just uh, a Google search of the text of Scripture for a certain word. We want to recognize what the author intends us to understand. And so the best way to start to notice biblical themes is just to read a lot of the Bible because you're going to see things come up over and over again. You'll start to recognize patterns. I've seen this before. And that helps us turn the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, from a collection of stories about strange, unfamiliar people, and maybe there's some lessons in it for me, we can turn it from that into its true form, which is one whole coherent story of God and his people from the very beginning up until now and into the future. But there is an opposite problem that we could commit as well. Um, you know, two similar words or ideas that we find in Scripture are not necessarily related a certain way once or twice doesn't mean that it will definitely happen that way again, and it definitely doesn't mean that it's going to happen to us that way, right? So we're not fortune-telling using the Bible either. So the important thing is that we want to learn how Scripture itself is teaching us to read it. <clears throat> we're not trying to fit the Bible into a framework, but we're trying to let the Bible reveal its internal framework to us. And this is how the Bible references itself, and it's how Jesus, for example, uses scripture. He quotes scripture often, but he rarely quotes one really killer verse or one long passage of scripture. He often says, you remember you've heard this and this and this from all different parts of the Bible, and the point therefore is, and so as Jesus uses scripture, so should we. <clears throat> when we do biblical theology, then we must be careful not to reduce the text of the Bible to just a collection of spiritual lessons, but we also must not stretch the connections into more than they are meant to mean. We have to let the Bible show us how it fits in with the whole picture as God intended. And so then what good is biblical theology? For me, maybe, a normal guy who's not a theologian, I'm not writing a book, why do I need this? So for one thing, biblical theology is a great antidote to you got a verse for that theology. What I mean by that is that a, a topical treatment of the Bible is a really easy way to start looking at the Bible for an answer to a question. You know, you can just, you can hop on to a to hundred different websites that will search the text of Scripture for a particular word for you, but if you do it that way, it's not necessarily going to get you the answer that you need, because for a lot of questions that you might have about the Bible, there isn't a verse for that. Let's say, for example, that you want to know whether or not we have to meet every Sunday to worship. You could search the whole text of the Bible for the word Sunday. I don't think you'll find anything, actually, um, but you won't find much. If you have a little bit more biblical knowledge, you might know, wait a minute, what I need to search for is the word Sabbath. That'll get me some hits. Yeah, that'll get you like a hundred hits. Some of them are laws that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness. Some of them are Jesus in the New Testament saying that the man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And none of them really answer your question still. But now you have a whole bunch of information 
Now you have to fit that information together. <coughs> and unsurprisingly, you'll find with a little bit of research that there are as many different ways of answering that question as there are people who have tried to answer it. But even though there's no verse for that, if you read the whole Bible with an eye for what God has to say about his day and about what he has to say about the themes of work and rest, you will clearly come to the conclusion that the church, God's people, ought to gather for worship on a weekly cadence. And Sunday seems to be the best candidate for that for those who believe in the resurrection. So there is actually a reason why we do this, but there is no verse for that. You can say the same thing about a study on gender or hell or what should I do with my life. All of those questions have answers in the Bible. None of them have a verse for that. But beyond this, biblical theology, even above answering our questions that we may have, is first and foremost meant to be a display of God's character and his grand plan and his coherent design. So by understanding God's big picture about mankind or his big picture about judgment or his big picture about sacrifice, we will have a rich and sturdy and durable understanding of these issues that isn't limited to just memorizing a few key texts. It allows us to see his overarching designs, to see the beauty and the symmetry and the intentionality with which God has created everything and revealed it to us in his word. And it reminds us that God has planned all of this from the very beginning and that everything is still going just according to his plan. Biblical theology gives us tools to make sense of parts of scripture that we don't understand or don't seem to have anything to do with us. And especially important for a sermon on biblical theology, a good understanding of biblical theology teaches us how to live. Okay, a sermon without an application is just a lecture for the record. But biblical theology shows us what God is like and what he considers to be important. It tells us what a proper response to all different parts of life should be. It tells us, it gives us wisdom to determine what is right and what is good and what is pleasing to God in our lives. It helps us to ask and answer questions like, does this fit with God's design? How does God want a person to handle this kind of situation? Is God pleased by this? And so we can take these grand sweeping themes of scripture and still very directly apply them into our lives. What is God like? Why did God make things the way he did? Why do we sin? How can God forgive me? How should I share the gospel with others? How should I work? How should I worship? How should I be a man or a woman? How should I be a father or a mother or a son or a daughter? What should I do with my life? Again, none of these questions have a verse for that, but God is not silent. And so I hope that as we study these biblical themes in Genesis, I'm able to draw out good applications for you, but also I hope that I'm able to pattern how you can draw out these biblical applications as you study the whole Bible for yourselves. <clears throat> so each sermon in this series will take roughly the following format. First, I'm going to give a very brief overview of a, a sort of a narrative chunk of Genesis. Some of them are going to be short, some of them are going to cover huge sweeping sections. Uh, but it's important to realize here that since I'm going to be preaching on a particular theme, I may not present the whole story or even properly focus on you know, the main point of the narrative because I'm going to be emphasizing the elements that reveal to us how we are to think about our particular chosen theme. So next, out of that overview, I'm going to draw your attention to one key topic or theme. And again, it may not be the main point, 
right? So consider the story of David and Goliath. The main point of that story is that it is an illustration of David functioning as a single chosen one, a Messiah, who will represent and save God's people from an otherwise insurmountable foe, which points us forward, we now know, to Jesus doing the same for us. That's the main point of David and Goliath. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing to learn in that story about maybe bravery. And also of interest to us, we might look at how God chose David, the youngest, the least in the birth order, to be his chosen one, which is a very common pattern in Scripture. So we might look all over Scripture to see where that pops up and what that might mean for us. And so then with that one theme in hand, we're going to look to the whole of Scripture to expand and enhance and develop our picture of that theme. The reason I've chosen Genesis for this is because many of the themes in Genesis just permeate the rest of Scripture. God clearly is setting the stage in Genesis for a lot of work that he's going to do in the future. And so I have no chance at addressing every occurrence of these themes, but I'm going to try to select foundational examples where our theme appears elsewhere in Scripture to give the best overall summary of its significance. And you're going to find as well that we are often going to turn to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, to learn about things that are introduced in Genesis. A very common biblical pattern is to begin and end a story in the same place and in the same way, and the whole Bible is no exception. And so finally then, with a sufficient understanding of our biblical theme, we're going to look at how to apply it to us. We're going to ask ourselves, what have we learned about God? What does he love? What does he hate? What does he want? How does he like to do things? And we're going to learn about ourselves. What is our purpose? What are our weaknesses? What do we do in different situations? How should I think or feel or act about fill in the blank? And how should that knowledge encourage us to worship? Should we praise? Should we weep, rejoice, repent? Should we ask something of God? We will attempt to apply wisdom to our knowledge so that we can know what pleases God. <clears throat> okay, so thank you for sticking with me through all of that introduction. Um, I'm not going to do that whole introduction for every sermon, so I'll encourage you to go back and listen to that bit again if it's necessary. <clears throat> I know it's a lot, but because this series is unusual, I do want to make sure we all understand where I'm going with it, because it's going to seem like I'm just flying past a lot of really important stuff, and I am, but there is a purpose and an intent to it, um, and there's a right and a wrong way to do it, so I want to make sure to explain myself. So these first four sermons, this week and the next three, are going to go up through Genesis 11, dealing with creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And so we're going to consider these the, the prehistory saga of Genesis. And then in the fall, I'm going to do four more sermons that are going to deal with the rest of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we're going to call that the, the patriarch saga. So we begin in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 with creation. So I'm going to fly over these chapters and make some general observations, just things to hang in your mind that we're going to come back to. So please don't think that this is a comprehensive treatment of Genesis 1 and 2. I've, I've simply chosen what I think is necessary to get the general plot line and then picked out a few key points to, to double-click on. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So much truth packed into one sentence. Seven words in the Hebrew language, the, the number of completion. But this verse is so familiar that we often just glance over it. First, we see that God pre-existed everything. In the beginning, God was already there. Number two, there is one God, not a God of the heavens and a God of the earth and a God of the sea or two gods that fought each other and the result was earth like so many ancient pure cultures would have believed. No, there is one God. And that God that already existed, who is one, made all of this. 
He wasn't made first. He wasn't the first thing that was made. He didn't spring up out of something. He was there, and he made everything. And so he is not equal to any part of the universe or to the sun. And so then this first verse, these first few verses, the author of Genesis, which is Moses, by the way, takes this, this summary, and he then expands it, now explaining more thoroughly what it looked like when God created everything. So each day of creation, God speaks into existence more things. The first three days, he forms matter out of nothing and places it into the void. And in the next three days, he fills that matter that he's created with heavenly bodies and with life. And as the days progress, each description of a day gets longer and longer and longer, which gives this sort of poetic impression of this, this bubbling and then increasing and ever-growing and explosive profusion of life, generally filling the universe with creation and beauty. And the sixth day, the longest description of all, details the creation of mankind, summarized saying, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so now, just like we took those first few verses summarizing all of creation and then expanded it, we're going to take these, these next verses summarizing the creation of mankind, and we're going to go back and expand it again in chapter 2. So the second chapter of Genesis describes in detail the creation of man. God gives the first explanation here of what man is for, what he is supposed to do, and the ideal relationship between the man and woman and especially between the man and God. So let me point out a few key facts that we're going to build on out of this section before we get to our selected theme. First, mankind, all man, bears the image of God. So for one thing, this is a slap in the face to the other cultures of the time when Genesis was written because essentially all of them in the area would believe that the king was either a deity himself or the likeness of God on earth. When Moses was writing this, Pharaoh was God on earth not all of mankind. But Moses says, no, 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 Pharaoh. Every one of these Israelite slaves that you see here working for you, each one of them, man, woman, and child, bears the image of God. That's a big claim. And second, and you'll see more of development of this idea later in Scripture, but the wording here is consistent with the idea that God's entire creation is designed as one giant temple, okay, a place to worship Him. And what does God say about worship? He says, do not worship a carved image or idol, which is why God puts in his creation temple, not a carved image, but a living image of himself. Idolatrous people throughout scripture will make petty temples and put a petty dead image of a petty God into it. But God creates an all-encompassing temple and puts a living image in it and then commands those image bearers to take dominion over all the earth and fill it, spreading God's image and God's glory and God's worship to every corner of creation. So hang on to that idea for later today. Creation as a temple. Okay, number two, we see that God formed and then filled creation. And then he commands Adam to form creation, to subdue it and have dominion over it, and then to fill creation, to be fruitful and multiply, which makes perfect sense because we bear his image. What are we here for then? To worship God. And how do we do that? He tells us right here when he creates us. Adam representative of all mankind, is given instructions. So if you're ever wondering, what do I do with my life? It might not be a complete answer, but this is a good place to start. We are to form and fill creation. Fortunately, we receive a lot more instruction and example as Scripture develops, but none of those instructions replace or override this initial purpose. 
They show us a fuller picture of what it means to form and fill. So God's design from the first moment of creation continues to be His design up through right now and forever. Nothing in Genesis 1 or 2 is overturned, destroyed, or given up on because of sin or because of our choices. So that's the other idea to hang on to. Nothing about God's design for creation is damaged by sin or our choices. Okay, third thing to watch out for. In chapter 1, God blesses man and woman and tells them to do these things. In chapter 2, God gives his law. He says, do not eat of this particular tree. He gives his law to Adam before Eve is created. And this is going to be important in chapter 3 when the servant get, serpent gets Eve to misrepresent God's law. God still comes and says, Adam, what have you done? So we say that Adam is the federal head of both man and woman. And so in this case, just understand federal to mean representative. It's a bit more than that, but Adam is the representative head of all mankind. And so it's his job, therefore, to pass down God's instruction. And God holds him responsible first. And we know that Adam understands this too, because when he sees Eve, he says, oh, this is me. This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. So we're not going to spend much time on this today. It's a whole different topic. Uh, I want to flag it because we're going to touch it next week. But also, um, today, uh, this is another good point to keep in mind, that Adam stands in for all mankind. And that's like another common pattern in Scripture where God will, will choose or nominate one federal head, one representative to stand in for a big group of his people. Okay? <clears throat> so with those three points in the back of our mind, let's move on to our, our spotlight theme. So I hope it's clear then that in every passage of Scripture there are many themes that we could pick out to trace. From these two chapters alone we could do light or word or work or rest, image, temple, man, woman, order. But today I want to show you what the Bible says about the garden. So I've chosen this theme as our first in the series because it is an excellent platform from which we can see the overarching redemption narrative. Right here in Genesis 1 and 2, God shows us a little preview of the whole story. So let me read from Genesis chapter 2 about the garden. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. (laughs) 
All right, so let's make some observations about the garden. We're going to return to this image many, many times in Scripture. But before we go there, let's see what we can learn about the garden just from this passage. Okay, one, we see that God made the garden himself. He got his hands dirty. He, he planted the garden. He dug the little holes and he put the seeds in. He trimmed the branches and mulched the flower beds. He made rivers to water it. God is not afraid in the least to come down into his creation and work it and bless it. He's not some cosmic clockmaker that winds everything up and then leaves it be. A good gardener is in the garden every day. And God made this garden to be in. He made this garden to dwell in. This garden is God's place. In chapter 3, we're going to see God casually walking in the garden in the cool of day, seemingly as he must do all the time. He likes to be here. Number two, we see that the garden was beautiful and bountiful. Did God need to make the trees bear fruit to eat? Yes, Adam and Eve needed food. But did he need to make them pleasing to the eye? No, of course not. He did it because he likes beauty. He wanted to. He wanted to enjoy his trees. He wanted mankind to enjoy his trees. Think of all the good things that God has given us simply to enjoy. Three, we see that God is the king of the garden. Now, why do we know this? Because he makes a decree over it. God made the garden. God writes the garden's law. Man may work in the garden, and in some ways man even supervises the garden, but God is the master. Fourth, we see the opposite of the garden is the wilderness, the out there. The wilderness is chaotic, where the garden is orderly. The wilderness is directionless, where the garden is bounded and organized. The wilderness isn't some sort of equal and opposite force to the garden, but rather where the garden is full, the wilderness is empty. The wilderness isn't the garden's enemy, it's the garden's destiny. Which brings us to the fifth point, that the garden was meant to be expanded. God didn't just mark off a garden with enough room for him and two people and call it a day. He told Adam and Eve to take dominion over all the earth, to expand this garden. I've shown you how to do it. Do it again. Conquer that wilderness. Fill the earth. In other words, God says, take my temple that I have put right here, my temple garden, to the ends of the earth. And I hope that phrase rings a bell. So just with this, this little text, this little image of the garden, we have a microcosm of the overarching story of the Bible. God makes a garden, a kingdom, a temple for himself, and he brings his people, Adam was created outside the garden, he brings his people into the garden, into his place, to dwell with him there, to enjoy him, for them together to enjoy God's kingdom. This is the archetype for all other stories in Scripture. Every other narrative in the Bible can either be read as a fulfillment of this design or as a rejection of this design. I want to call out another couple of key elements in the garden that we're going to see again and again. I want to put a pin in the tree and the river. Okay, and as we're going through this, please realize I don't have some sort of like sense about which ones of these themes are going to be important later. The reason I know which ones are going to come up again later is because I've read the Bible and I know that they come up again later, right? So the first time you read through something, don't expect for these words to like highlight themselves in your mind for you. But we have a tree in the garden. We actually have many trees and they're all beautiful and fruitful. And so we eat them to sustain ourselves. God has given us sustenance. Two are marked out. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. 
Um, we're not going to necessarily dive into the meaning of either one of those just now, but just they're called out because they're going to be important in a minute. So hang on to those. The river, on the other hand, gets a lot of screen time. And so it seems like it's going to obviously be important without even reading ahead. What do we observe about the river? We see that it's the source of life for the garden. Gardens need water, and this river provides it. Secondly, the river is the source of the other rivers. It's a sort of ambassador to the rest of the lands. Man should, ideally, be soon expanding the garden into these nearby lands. And where's the easiest place to expand a garden? Where there's water. So the rivers are announcing, hey, God is coming here next. Get ready. Third, the rivers are God's providence. Just as man is going to need to uh, need more water to expand the garden, and just as man needs water to drink every day to survive, God has provided for these things. And lastly, the rivers mark off boundaries of the land. The land around the garden is known by the rivers. That's how we call them out. So the rivers serve as boundaries. Okay, so we have in our minds now a picture of God's garden. It is his creation, but more than that, it is God's place. It's his land. It is his kingdom. And it contains the tree for food and the river for water, everything that's needed for life. And God made this garden for himself and for us to live in and work in and expand and spread his glory together. And so we have certain key facts about that from this text, and we have a few other related themes that we can watch out for as we now move to the rest of Scripture to see where this is going to come up again. We don't have to go far to find the first connection. The very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, we find the first subversion of this theme. Adam and Eve sin. They disobey the king's law and eat of the forbidden tree. We're going to look at the fall in more detail next week, but for now, let's see what's relevant to the garden. First, we see that God's law was, in fact, real. Adam and Eve maybe had that in their mind. God said, but how do we know it's true, right? Well, it turns out God, as the creator and as the king of the garden, does in fact get to make the rules. Second, we see Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden as a punishment for their sin. And the door to the garden is now guarded so that no one may ever enter. And this is really important to see, actually, because the garden wasn't corrupted. It's not like God made the garden and then Adam and Eve sinned and then, ooh, now the garden, you know, like in a Disney movie, like the thorns come up and it shrivels and like, oh no, God's power is gone here because of the sin. No, God says, I can't have sin in my perfect garden, so you've got to go. Man is sinful and he is the one who can't be around God, not the other way around. And so we realize then that God is actually merciful to Adam and Eve by putting them in the wilderness because the other option is to kill them. They can't be in the garden. So it's either in the ground or in the wilderness. So God is patient sending man out of the garden, but as we will soon see, with a plan to bring him back. <clears throat> so even though we have chosen rebellion and cannot stay in the garden, and we are now inhabitants of the wilderness where there is not eternal life but death, God has not given up on his mission to spread this garden kingdom of endless life across the earth. We have not ruined his plan. And so from here on out, I'm going to look at more places in the Bible where this motif of the garden comes up. I'm not going to go like in chronological order or in order of the books of the Bible. I'm just going to reference a whole bunch of scriptures kind of grouped by idea so that we can develop this idea of the garden. But this is where it's really important to just read your Bible because you're not going to notice these things unless you are reading one part of Scripture and your mind says, hey, wait a minute, there's this other part. I've seen this. So read the Old Testament. One, 
about the garden, God continues to pattern His place and His people the way He did in the garden. Okay? In the law, God designs His tabernacle to remind us of the garden. He even includes a lampstand, the menorah, in the tabernacle that looks like a tree. And the tree shines its light over the bread that is God's food for His people. The tabernacle is where God dwelt during Israel's wanderings, and the tabernacle is where the high priest would go to meet with God as a federal representative of God's people. And like Adam is told to work and keep the garden, the priests are told in the exact same words to work and keep the tabernacle. God's dwelling place is still His garden. And look again when the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. God still provides for His people, even though they are in the wilderness. And we also see the Tigris, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are boundaries of this promised land as well. I'm not going to bother mentioning every time that the Bible uses a garden or a plant or a tree or a river as a metaphor for health and happiness and prosperity and God's provision, or the opposite, the wilderness as a representative of punishment or as a trial. This imagery just permeates Scripture. It's probably the most common metaphor in Scripture, just agricultural metaphors everywhere. God is a gardener. Okay, but point two that we can see from the rest of the Bible about the garden. God cares deeply for the holiness and the purity of His garden. We know this, but we see it reinforced again. Look at Isaiah 5. This is one of the anchor passages in Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning His vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. This is God, God's vineyard. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes... But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Which brings us to our third common usage of the garden imagery. God's people repeatedly find themselves in the wilderness due to their unfaithfulness. So the obvious example besides Eden is when Israel is left to wander in the wilderness after escaping Egypt but before entering the Promised Land because they were not faithful to God. But we also see God's people sent into exile out of their fruitful lands and into captivity many, many times throughout history. It's a very common punishment for the people of God to be cast out of the garden and into the wilderness. The wilderness in Scripture is a place characterized by a lack of water and a lack of growth and a lack of settled lands. And God not only sends Israel into a physical or spiritual wilderness, but he even threatens similar judgments on other nations as well. But God does more than just punish in the wilderness. See Deuteronomy 29. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. God still provides for his people in the wilderness. He still cares for them. He still follows them. He still loves them. And not only this... 
But it is in the wilderness where God so often makes and renews his covenants with his people. Abraham was nomadic when God covenanted with him. The covenant with Israel was made at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And look in Hosea. Here God is represented as a husband and Israel as a wayward bride. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Remember this as we continue on. The wilderness is a place of imperfection and it is a place of judgment, but the wilderness is also a place of God's provision and the wilderness is a place where God makes promises to His people. And the most important promise of those is our fourth major point where we see the garden come up again and again in the Bible. God continually promises to restore a garden like Eden for his people. Ezekiel 36, The land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was empty. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. And so let's now move to the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 3. We find John the Baptist calling men to repent. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what do they say of John the Baptist? They say, he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But we're still in the wilderness by this point. But John the Baptist says, look, the Lord is returning. The gardener is coming back. Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God has promised a return to the garden. And Jesus says, I'm the way. God chose a people for himself in the wilderness to be his vineyard. And we see how they have failed him. But Jesus says, I am the true vine. The gate to Eden is sealed and guarded. Jesus says, I am the door. How does this happen? How does Jesus bring God's garden back to the wilderness? So here's a really big clue. The last hours of Jesus' life are full of gardens. Look, a man in a garden, Gethsemane. God commands him to go to his death. He does not want to obey, sweating blood under the weight of his choice. Will he be like Adam and choose rebellion? No. Jesus says, not my own, but your will be done. Where the first man in the garden resisted, the new man in the garden submits. Look again, a man hanging on a cross. Peter and Paul both call the cross a tree. Is this tree like the one in the garden? That tree gave the fruit of life, but this tree holds only death. The only fruit hanging on this tree is Jesus' mutilated body. But what does Jesus say? In John 6, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. 
This tree does indeed bear fruit. This tree is indeed the tree of life. And from the tree of life flows a river of blood. The blood that is the source of life. A river of God's providence that marks the boundaries of God's people. A tree and a river restored. Look again. A man dead in a tomb. A woman comes to pay her respects, but she finds no body. She asks a passerby for help. Listen to this in John 20. She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said. And you hear that? Supposing him to be the gardener. Friends, he was. He was the gardener. Look at what has happened in this garden. A man in the earth, raised up out of the dust to life, in a garden, he obeys God. Does this sound familiar? But this man is not the same as the first man. He is not like Adam. Adam was cursed to die, but this new Adam, Jesus, defeats death. This man is not like Adam. Adam was cast out from the garden and into the wilderness as a punishment for his sins. But this new Adam, Jesus, he left the garden willingly to come to the wilderness, giving up paradise. And he finds his people buried under a crushing yoke. So he takes the curse of sin onto himself on the tree of life from which flows the river of blood. He dies in our stead. And yet returns to life, bringing the garden back into the wilderness. God says, you have sinned and cannot enter my garden, so I will send the new gardener to you. Jesus is the true vine, the water of life, the door, the way. He is everything that Adam was not. He was everything that we are not. And so do you see what God has done here? His aim was to build a garden kingdom where he and his people will live and that will spread to encompass all of creation. Friends, our sin, Adam's sin, and all of our sin did not ruin that plan. Adam was not the gardener. Adam was not the true vine. Adam was not the door. Jesus always was. Adam used to be alive. Jesus is alive. He is the life. And God at the cross, at that tree of life from which flowed a river of life, has once again planted a new garden filled with those who bear his image. And so what then has he commanded us to do? To take dominion over the earth, subdue it, be fruitful and multiply, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So our job now is to fill the earth with the garden of the good news of Jesus. But now you may have noticed that this new gardener and this new garden is not quite like Eden in some ways. It isn't perfect. See, God has made a way to amend our ruined relationship with him. But the final, the ultimate garden kingdom 
is not yet complete. As you see, just like he was in Eden, God is still patient today. He says that he is waiting to bring in his final kingdom so that a few more might be saved before he cleanses the whole world of unrighteousness and rebuilds it all again. He will build a new heavens and a new earth, a new garden and a new kingdom. And this one, because it is not full of men like Adam, but rather full of men who have been made like Jesus, this new kingdom will be perfect forever. Remember I said that the Bible often tells stories that begin and end in the same place. Come with me to Revelation, the end. It is the only part of the Bible that hasn't happened yet. And listen to this description of God's final garden kingdom. And listen for all the familiar pictures. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. There's one right there. The waters used to form boundaries before the land. There are no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Not just a garden now, but a whole city where God dwells with his people. And where is the curse? It has passed away with the old earth. Skipping ahead some, I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. No gates. No boundaries. It has finally come to pass that the dwelling place of God now covers all the earth. The boundaries of the sea, gone. The boundaries of the gate, gone. The wilderness, gone. It's all God's garden now. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter this final garden. No serpent, no sin. God's garden kingdom here complete. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The river and the tree. The tree of life isn't just a tree, as it turns out, a whole species of tree, always in season. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires Take of the water of life without price. Do you realize then what this means for all people? That we are all Adam. You are Adam. God made you to work his garden, to obey him, to be with him, and to live with him forever. But you chose death when you disobeyed. Even though Adam did it first, we have all sinned. We have all wanted more than God's perfect garden. 
You likewise have failed to trust that what God has built for you is better than what you think you want. And so God has cast you out of the garden. It's for your own good, though, because if God were to fully reveal himself to you like he intended to, you, a sinner, would perish. And so you wander the wilderness, God being endlessly patient with you. Do you feel that? Do you feel yourself wandering the wilderness sometimes? That feeling is exactly correct. This is the wilderness. This is the thorns and thistles. This place is the loss and death. This is the anxiety and fear of man and pride and lust and laziness and lies and sexual immorality and faithlessness. This is the wilderness. This is not God's garden. Friend, if you are not a Christian, if you are not one of God's people, recognize that this wilderness is as good as it ever gets. This this pathetic knockoff imitation of God's garden is the best life you'll ever get. Because if you are a sinner, you are not welcome in the garden. But wait, you say, all these other people here are sinners too. I've seen it. And you're right. We are all Adam. But we here who are Christians are not just sons and daughters of Adam like you are as well. We are also sons of God. For when Jesus died on that tree of life, he died for our sins, paid for our treason. He left the garden, he came to the wilderness, he took our place to be punished. He returned to life after three days and became the new and better Adam, better in every way. And he says, all who believe in him will not perish, but have life forever. So please join us today. Repent of your sins and come to Jesus. Because if you do, then this wilderness will no longer be the best you'll ever get. It will be the worst. The garden is only better in every way. And so then, brothers and sisters, remember that. Remember that God's garden is not like this place. God is making a garden where he will live with his people and it will spread to cover all creation. But this isn't it yet. That first garden, even, as beautiful and glorious as it was, was merely a foreshadowing of the final garden. And this place is no garden at all. This place is the wilderness. This is the very worst of it. So if you can, remember before you were a Christian, remember being far from God. What was it like when God saved you to suddenly not be so far from Him? It can only be even more so when we finally arrive at the open gates of that new and final spotless garden. This worship that we are performing today, nothing compared to what we will sing to Him in God's garden. The joy that you experience from the embrace of your child, meaningless in comparison to the embrace of God. The belonging that comes from being a people joined together here. We will belong with every person as God's people. One day in that new creation, in that garden, in that city, with the open gate, where Jesus is the gate and the light and the door and the river and the tree and the throne, we will plant and reap and build and laugh and dance and gather and embrace, sing and love and eat and drink with God in his garden forever. I want to close by reading to you a little excerpt from C.S. Lewis's final book in the Narnia series, The Last Battle. This, this little passage is the strongest, most potent image I have ever encountered of the sensation of that, that new life in the new garden. So after the last battle for Narnia is over, all of our characters have died. And they arrive in a place that's like their old home. They can't quite describe it, but it's bigger and better in every way. One of them says, 
I feel I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And they run further into this land, exploring it until they reach a garden where they find Aslan the lion. He represents Jesus in the stories of Narnia. And they ask Aslan, they say, where are we? And he says, all of you are dead. The term is over. The holiday has begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great book which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Brothers and sisters, beloved, this is not our home. Not even close. God's garden is our home. We are heaven-bound. Do not forget, we are in the wilderness today, and not the garden, but the garden is coming. Please pray with me. Father, you are the great gardener. You know just how to plant and to sow, to water and to prune and to care for your garden in every perfect way. And Lord, we recognize that our sin, our sin has made us such that we, we could never be with you. God, thank you. Thank you for this, this book, this precious story in which you have revealed to us how you have not forgotten your people, how you have not cast us out forever, but how you have sent your son, yourself, Jesus, to replant your garden, to repair our sinfulness, and to be the new and the better us. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his resurrection in which we have eternal life. God, we eagerly, desperately await the day when our wandering in the wilderness is over and we enter your garden. Please, may that day come soon. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.
promise more.